0: listening to ohio versus the world an american history podcast subscribe and
1: follow the show on itunes stitcher spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to join the conversation on facebook or at our website ohio the world podcast.com ohio versus the world is part of the evergreen podcast network go to evergreenpodcast.com for all our past episodes now here's your host alex Hasty.
2: Welcome back, everybody, to the midpoint of Season 6 of Ohio vs. the World. It's Episode 6, Ohio vs. Lawyering. We'll be talking about the most famous attorney in American history, Kinsman, Ohio native Clarence Darrow. The attorney for the damned, as he was called. By telling about his life and his biggest cases, we'll cover some of the biggest issues of his time in America that, sadly, are still major issues 100 years later in the 21st century. Remember that Ohio vs. the World is now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Go to evergreenpodcast.com. You can hear all of our back episodes there. This is actually our 81st episode, so there's 80 for you to go back and listen to. Uh, And don't forget, we're part of an entire history channel on Evergreen. We're one of, I think, eight shows. So go check them all out. uh, And also be sure to hit the subscribe button to all our iTunes listeners. The majority of you listen on iTunes. The new update kind of scrambled my podcast on my phone. I had to go... Back in and subscribe to some of my favorite shows to see them more easily. So, whatever service you use to listen to Ohio versus the World, make sure you hit subscribe to get all our new episodes directly to your phone. And we've got so much to get to today, so I'll be brief. Today we have four amazing guests. One is a Pulitzer Prize winner in history for his book about the most famous Clarence Darrow case. Another was a National Book Award winner for his book on the Darrow case. We're also joined by the brilliant former president of the ACLU and one of the finest criminal defense attorneys in the state of Ohio. These are four of the most enjoyable interviews we've ever done, and it's made for a great episode. Uh, We'll introduce you to all four as we follow the career and the life of the greatest lawyer in American history. All rise. It's Episode 6, Ohio vs. Lawyering. Clarence Seward Darrow was born on April 18, 1857, in the small village of Farmdale in northeast Ohio, that Connecticut western reserve area of the state. His middle name is Seward after the leading Republican and abolitionist politician William Seward of New York. True to his middle name, his parents were abolitionists and free thinkers for the 19th century. They moved to the nearby small town of Kinsman, which is where Clarence grew up. Our first guest is Ed Larson, an award-winning writer, professor of law and history, at Pepperdine University in Malibu, California. Beautiful campus right off Highway 1. And Ed knows Clarence Darrow as well as anybody. He wrote about Darrow's most famous trial, the Scopes Monkey Trial of 1925, uh, when he won the Pulitzer Prize in 1998 for his book, Summer for the Gods. It's an amazing book and and certainly worthy of the award. But in the dedication for the book, it says it's in the memory of my father, Rex Larson, a Darrow-like criminal lawyer. Ed grew up in Mansfield, Ohio, between Cleveland and Columbus, and we asked him about the similarities between Clarence Darrow and his late father and attorney, Rex Larson.
3: Darrow was up in Estabula, Ohio, is where he was a practicing lawyer. He grew up in Kinderman, near the Pennsylvania state line, but gravitated toward Ashtabula. My father served in World War II and then went to law school on the GI Bill. And he had just grown to admire Clarence Darrow. During the 30s, while Darrow was still alive, he'd read about Darrow's trials. And of course, there were already some movies about some of them. He went to University of Michigan. I know that's a bad word for somebody from Ohio, but he went to University of Michigan to law school. He went to Ohio State undergrad but he went to law school there because that's where Darrow went. And on the GI Bill, he could sort of go where he wanted. Before the war, he had taught school in Ashtabula. And I think that's where he became sort of a fan of Clarence Darrow. And he'd read about, uh, Darrow was a master of jury selection and uh, the closing argument. Those were two of the areas he really advanced. And my father found those fascinating. Uh, He also, Darrow was a bit of a labor lawyer and Um, Until my father became the prosecuting attorney, he represented some labor unions in Mansfield back then, uh, quite an industrial small city. So he was just always fascinated by Darrow. And in a way, he had some similarities in the way he'd try a case, the way he'd sort of be like the small town lawyer talking to the jury. And it was that sense and some of those aspects of his life that he modeled after Darrow. Um, he smoked as heavily as Darrow, and, uh, and at a time drank as heavily. And so with all those similarities and his admiration, you know, I had to be thinking about my father as I was writing about Clarence Darrow.
2: Our second guest is a friend and one of the best criminal lawyers in the state of Ohio, John Sayah. John is someone i go to if I have a question about crim law, and he's a fan of the show, so we asked him to hop on, share his vast knowledge, Of another great Ohio defense attorney, Clarence Darrow. We'll talk about Darrow's rise to fame and glory throughout this episode, but there's one little-known case out of his days as a small-town lawyer in Ohio that I think shows the lengths that Clarence Darrow was willing to go to, to zealously advocate for his client. John talks to us about the seemingly unimportant case of Jewel v. Brockway that Darrow takes all the way to the Ohio Supreme Court as a young attorney.
4: Darrow was a fighter. Um, he, he is known as the attorney for the damned. He took cases that were, were unwinnable and would somehow turn them into, into winners. And this particular case was early on in his career. And there was a, uh, a town drunk, for, for lack of a better way of putting it, who fell ill and hired uh, a young uh, Brockway to take care of him as part of the compensation of Brockway, a horse saddle. Eventually there was a, a guardian appointed uh, for, the, for the town drunk, took the saddle back. Darrow took on the case for purportedly $5 uh, fee and the case lingered on for nine years. The case went to trial in, in 1885. Uh, there was appeals sent back down for retrials. Eventually the case ends up in the Supreme Court. And in uh, 1894, Darrow uh, gets a, a win in the Supreme Court of Ohio and, and gets uh, Brockway his $30 saddle. Well, by that point in time in Darrow's career, he had left Ohio around 1887 and moves to Chicago, uh, becomes in, involved in uh, Chicago politics, uh, takes on some big cases, and uh, he's involved in, in two, two of his major cases in his life by uh, 1894, the time when this uh, Supreme Court case is, is being decided.
2: Those two big cases that John's referring to are Darrow's first two really big media trials. His representation of labor leader Eugene Debs and his role in the nationwide labor strike known as the Pullman Strike in 1894. And in the same year, he's representing Patrick Prendergast, who's assassinated the mayor of Chicago, went to his house and, and, and killed him. But in 1887, Darrow's married with a son, Paul, has a fledgling law office in Ashtabula, Ohio, a city we've discussed many times on the show, tucked in the very northeast corner of the state, near the PA border, right on Lake Erie. Darrow makes a move that would change his life in American legal history. He decides to pack up everything and move to Chicago. We talked to Pulitzer Prize-winning author Ed Larson about Darrow's move to Chicago and his becoming America's leading defense attorney for the labor movement.
3: It was very common back then for Ohioans to, if they moved to the big city, to move to Chicago. Chicago at that time was probably the most dynamic city in America. It's the Chicago of Carl Sandburg, uh, Chicago of Edgar Lee Masters, City of Big Shoulders, building those wonderful skyscrapers that they built, Chicago style. It was opening the West, whatever New York had. And New York had a lot of energy then. Chicago equaled it. And so it was a, a place where Ohioans, being Midwesterners themselves, naturally gravitated. So he wasn't the only one. As you know from this from doing this program, Ohio during that period was one of the most dynamic um, nurturing grounds for arts, literature, so many writers, so many um, actors, so many people who gained notoriety living in Chicago or New York or, or, or even, even Los Angeles came actually from Ohio, often from small towns like um, Clarence Darrow did. There was no place in Ohio that offered the dynamism for a rising, ambitious, really progressive lawyer. And he had been progressive from his father and his mother were both Small town progressives in Kinsman, Ohio. Ashtabula was too small for him. He did get his footing there. He practiced law there. He actually left his wife and family behind, n- not knowing if he'd make it to Chicago. But when he got there, he got tied up with people like Edgar Lee Masters, who was also a lawyer as well as a writer. Leaped into the cultural life of the city. He was a writer. He would write short stories for the local newspapers and some magazines. That got him some notoriety. He was a writer like Jack London. It was that sort of realism. He got a job because the the government was controlled by the Democrats. And he got a job working for the city. And he got a job working for the local transit company. But he left that during the great Pullman strike and represented Eugene V. Debs. First built a reputation that extended beyond Chicago, his successful a relatively successful defense, his mm-hmm. vigorous defense, let's call it that, yeah, there you uh, go. of labor, um, captured the attention. And that time, labor was as militant as it ever was in American history. And it was trying to cut its place in American society. Many employers were as hardened as they ever were fighting it. It was a strong divide. It was the era of, well, an Ohioan like William McKinley um, and Mark Hanna, Versus uh, the progressives like William Jennings Bryan, and in that age, Darrow gained a footing as the the thanks to his defense of Debs and others, uh, as really the leading defense lawyer for labor.
2: becomes an institution, a celebrity in the Windy City. His home becomes a salon of sorts for artists and writers. Parties, intellectual sessions, alcohol flowed, and women were part of that scene as well. Darrow was an atheist. He called himself an agnostic, but his father Amorous was known kind of as the village atheist in, back in Kinsman, Ohio. We could have just talked for about Darrow and his bohemian lifestyle for 20 minutes. We asked John Sayah, attorney here in Columbus, Ohio, about Darrow's lifestyle that was so much a departure from the Victorian age ethics of the early 20th century.
4: Well, Clarence Darrow was very liberal and very forward thinking, uh, especially for, for his time. It was a city that had a number of uh, private clubs uh, of, of all different variations, and Darrow became involved in some of these uh, intellectual clubs. And he, he hung around with the, the elite uh, of, of Chicago at that point in time. Uh, there was a lot of uh, attorneys, doctors, judges, philosophers, college professors, and they would get together, and they were kind of the, the free thinkers of, of the day. And Darrow really took to that kind of lifestyle. He became a uh, very active in, in women's suffrage, despite the fact that he was also very much thought of as a womanizer. He was part of the what was called the Free Love Society at the time, Uh, He was married, had affairs that were known, uh, divorced, remarried, continued on with affairs, pretty much uh, an open book. Being divorced early on in his career, he he supported his first wife for uh, virtually his entire life. So he considered himself agnostic. So uh, interestingly enough, uh, he gave a famous speech here in Columbus, Ohio. The title of the speech was, Why I am an Agnostic. And uh, in 1929, he came to Columbus, Ohio and participated uh, in a symposium. That, that speech you can find uh, on the Internet and, and read through it, and he explains why uh, he is agnostic. His views are, are, are rather interesting, and, and actually he makes a compelling argument uh, to explain why he's agnostic.
2: Darrow continues to rise in fame in the first decade of the 20th century. Cases like his defense of labor activist Big Bill Haywood accused of the assassination of the former governor of Idaho. He gets him acquitted. But Darrow takes a similarly high-profile case out in Los Angeles in 1911. The L.A. Times, then a very conservative paper, owned and run by ultra-conservative Harrison Gray Otis, a former union general from Marietta, Ohio. The L.A. Times is an open shop, meaning unions were not allowed at the newspaper. Two brothers, the McNamara's, two labor radicals, traveled to L.A., and they blew up the L.A. Times with dynamite. They did it overnight, but what they didn't count on was a number of employees would be there late that night working on a special edition of the paper. John Sayah tells us about the L.A. Times bombing case.
4: It was a huge deal. There was uh, 20 people were murdered in the L.A. Times building during that that bombing. L.A. Times was a non-union newspaper. There was a plot to plant bombs, not only in the building itself, but also at the home of Otis of the LA Times. The, the, the bombs that were placed at or near the Otis home were not detonated. However, the ones at the LA Times building were. So the, uh, the McNamaras were two brothers, went out to the LA area for the purpose to get the unions in the LA Times. Uh, one of the brothers came up with the idea of planting the bombs. Darrow was brought in on the case. By the union representatives, very early on in the case was just convinced that the case was absolutely uh, unwinnable. At that point in time, uh, executions were were fairly common in these types of cases uh, in the United States, and they were done rather quickly too, not not at all like uh, uh, today's delays of, of fifteen or twenty years. Uh, executions were carried up, were carried out pretty quickly, and juries and courts were were, pretty freely uh, issuing or ordering sentences of of death. So Darrow was really uh, concerned about these two brothers both uh, being sentenced to, to death and being executed.
2: The case took the nation by storm, and with being the attorney for the damned and the leading defense attorney for the labor movement, his appearance in the case just only heightened the atmosphere. He's hired by the AFL, the American Federation of Labor, actually founded by Samuel Gompers right here in Columbus, Ohio. We now notice the AFL-CIO. Darrow and the unions would set to raise hundreds of thousands of dollars for the McNamara brothers' defense. A lot of that money went to Darrow. So much that this would become really his last case for Darrow to represent labor unions. Darrow became convinced of the brothers' guilt in and and this terrorist attack, and, and the strength of, of the state's case against him just blew him away. He's desperate. Everyone expected him to pull off another miracle, but in this case he knew it wasn't going to happen. So he made a decision. A decision that would perhaps end his career.
4: So it was. It was a large sum of money. So Darrow told the AFL that the defense would cost at least three hundred and fifty thousand uh, dollars, which in today's dollars would be just just an incredible amount of money. He was originally paid fifty thousand uh, dollars for his fee for the defense, and although the AFL was not able to raise the Entire amount of the 350,000, they did raise somewhere in the neighborhood of an additional 150 to to 200,000 dollars. As the case was preparing uh, to go to trial, Darrow uh, was able to get a list of the jurors for the for the trial, as was common in the day. So the attorneys were provided a list, and uh, as the story goes, Darrow bribed at least two of the, the jurors. His investigator is actually caught handing over $4,000 to a juror on the case. He turns state's evidence and is and the main witness against Clarence Darrow in the uh, first uh, jury tampering trial. He was actually charged uh, twice with jury tampering in the McNamara case that may have played a major role in pleading these two two brothers guilty. It all happened around the same time, and, and the, the plea deal that, that Darrow was able to work was to save both their lives, although one of the brothers was sentenced to life in prison, while the other brother received somewhere between a 10 and 15-year sentence.
2: Clarence Darrow's on trial for his legal career and his legacy, maybe even his freedom. He's charged with attempting to bribe a juror, and there's plenty of evidence and witnesses against him. Attorney John Saya takes us through both of Clarence Darrow's trials, where he is the defendant.
4: All the evidence points towards the fact that he did this. Uh, Darrow hires the top lawyer in uh, California at the time, a, a an attorney by the name of Earl Rogers. First trial goes wonderful for Darrow. So Earl Rogers is there pre- uh, presenting the defense for for Darrow, and the jury comes back not guilty uh, with regard to uh, the first bribery. Uh, then there's a second trial, and during the second trial, Rogers uh, takes ill in the middle of the trial, and Darrow actually has to represent himself for portions of that trial. Second trial ends up in a hung jury, and after consideration, the uh, state decides not to go forward with the with the trial. So he ends up really walking away and, and, and not being convicted of either of the jury tampering charges but it, it really damages his, his reputation and then with the amount of fees that were paid uh, to him by the union and then him entering a plea for the McNamara brothers just uh, really, really destroyed his ability to go on and continue to represent the union.
2: Darrow would limp back to Chicago, bruised and disgraced. He's even broke, but he was too talented to be kept down for long. He becomes exclusively a criminal defense attorney, doing murder cases, high profile criminal cases. But Darrow lives in a very different time than we live in now in America. Our rights to protest, our rights to free speech, they did not exist in any fashion you would recognize today. The issue of civil liberties became a passion for Darrow. At the same time, the American Civil Liberties Union was born to protect the individual rights and liberties under the Constitution. Our third guest, Nadine Strassen, was the former president of the American Civil Liberties Union from 1991 to 2008. She's at the forefront of fighting for these civil liberties. She was an awesome interview, and we talked to her about the birth of the ACLU, why it was necessary, and the role Clarence Darrow would play in their early years.
0: The ACLU was founded in 1920 precisely in order to try to put some real teeth into the paper but toothless guarantees of free speech and other individual rights in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, including the First Amendment and its free speech guarantee. The Constitution and the Bill of Rights are not self executing. They only come into force and make a difference when people understand what their rights are, are willing to demand that government respect their rights, and there are lawyers and other experts who are able to advocate for those rights. The Supreme Court didn't even have an opportunity to rule on a free speech claim until the 20th century, and indeed one of the major reasons for the founding of what ultimately became the ACLU was the rampant violation of what we now consider to be deeply entrenched, uh, really fundamental free speech rights, namely the right of we the people to criticize government officials, to criticize government policies, to dissent from popular political positions. One of the statistics that kind of hammers at home is that during the World War I era, 15,000 people were arrested merely for peacefully criticizing the war and war policies. And many of these people served time in jail. Many of them were um, members of the clergy who believed that the war was inconsistent with principles of Christianity and other major religions.
2: I learned so much from talking with Nadine uh, just about how different things were. The the First Amendment was not something that you were just granted back in the 1910s, 1920s. But as we move forward to the roaring 20s, this is a decade where Darrow became the most famous lawyer in America. We're going to discuss his three most famous cases, all during really an 18-month period from 1924 to 1926. The first of those three cases is the murder trial of Leopold and Loeb, one of the most sensational murder trials in American history, the killing of a 14-year-old boy, Bobby Franks, in Chicago, by the wealthy and brilliant young Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb. It's in the summer of 1924. It's a grisly murder. Leopold and Loeb are like, 19 years old, beyond intelligent, but they were disturbed young men. They wanted to commit the perfect crime, they called it, and they got caught but they bragged to the press. They're laughing during some of these early hearings. And to many, these two symbolized everything that was wrong with America and its immoral youth in the jazz age. We asked author Ed Larson to tell us why this murder struck a chord with the entire country.
3: The Leopold Loeb trial just hit every hot button. Remember, this was a time of journalistic sensation. This is a time when, when you had yellow journalism at its height. And this just played in So now remember, this is a time when there's like a murder a night in Chicago. This is (laughs) the height of gangland. So it wasn't unusual to have murders all the time. Um, But this was an interesting story because it wasn't a gangland murder. Here were two rich, able, smart, college graduates, Um, teenage graduates, one of Chicago University of Chicago, the other of University of Michigan, they'd grown up together in Hyde Park, a wealthy Jewish suburb. And Loeb's father was the president, the acting president, yeah. uh, of Sears Roebuck store in America. Everybody went to Sears Roebuck. Here was the son of the acting president. Leopold's, you know, father was successful as well. They were reputed to be homosexual. Actually, only one was. The story was these rich. Jewish homosexuals murder this young boy. The stories had that they sodomized him. That was really not true. But, you know, you couldn't stop the press from reporting anything. Kidnapping was common then. Remember the Lindbergh kidnapping was about sure. that same era. So that hit a lot of the fright. And also these were boys whose ends up defense me, they read Nietzsche. They read modern philosophy and the idea of the Superman. So it played into um, religious concerns about people learning about survival of the fittest and people were more able. Remember, it's sort of like the story in a way of crime and punishment, of people thinking they're they're Superman and then get away with, with killing people. It fed into too many stories. The way it unfolded, they didn't know who it was. The press got involved, this young man who disappeared, didn't know what happened to him. The kidnap note comes, the guy doesn't reappear. Who did it? The body's found. It just, it unfolded over a week. And then the Chicago press was linked into national news like the Hearst newspapers and the Pulitzer newspapers, which then carried the story. And it just exploded over time. And it became the sensation of, of the summer at a time when the press loved sensations. It was the O.J. Simpson trial of its era. The real cause
0: of crime is poverty, ignorance, hard luck, and generally you. When we look at the prisoners in the jails, we find that all of them practically are poor. At least nine-tenths began what they call a criminal career as mere children.
2: Clarence Darrow, as much as he played the ah-shucks country lawyer card with his suspenders, layback you know, Ohio drawl, he was forward-thinking when it came to his thoughts on criminal justice. He made the connection between environment and upbringing, criminality, the role of poverty in making someone a criminal. He got that 100 years ahead of some of the judges I practiced in front of in the last 13 years. We talk with Ed Larson about Darrow's representation of Leopold and Loeb and his lifelong opposition to the death penalty.
3: Well, Darrow was at the time the most famous defense, was already the most famous defense lawyer in America. He had been practicing law in Chicago for over 30 years. And he normally, you know, would have no sympathy for rich murderers. But the family of the defendants came to him, pleaded with him, for a substantial sum, defend Leopold and Loeb. Darrow volunteered his services at the scopes trial. He did not volunteer, he volunteer here. He was, getting, uh, he was going to get a large payment. And Darrow was the highest paid defense lawyers in America at that time. And he was a specialist in murder cases. He had handled dozens and dozens and dozens of murder cases and none of his, he's such a, so effective that none of his, at a time when the capital punishment was very common and often enforced. Not a single one of his, uh, the people he defended, men or women he defended, was ever executed. That was true throughout his life. Not one was ever executed. Now, the problem was the boys had already confessed. What he had to do was make an argument that would lead to mercy in the sense that they would be sentenced to life imprisonment. Um, rather than the capital punishment. He had always been opposed to capital punishment because, remember, he was a libertarian. And he did not think you could trust the state with the power to kill some because he believed that the verdicts were often wrong. Uh, Will Rogers about this time made a wonderful, Will Rogers was the most popular sort of commentator uh, in America at the time. became a, a film star, but he was a newspaper columnist. And he had said that the Anglo-American legal system is the best engine ever devised by the mind of man to determine who has the best lawyer. Darrow thought that most times um, poor black people and poor white people for that matter didn't have very good lawyers. And therefore capital punishment would be inequitably applied. He also just didn't trust the state with that power. He, again, he was, a, he was not liberal in that sense. He was a social liberal. But he didn't trust government. He ended up, of course, ending his life fighting the New Deal, fighting Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, um, because he didn't like government yeah. intervention. It was that combination that made him distrust and oppose capital punishment as a matter
2: of principle. This Leopold and Loeb murder trial had fascinated the country. But it wasn't like a who-done-it kind of trial. The boys had confessed before Darrow was even hired. He's there to present a case about their shattered past their mental states during the murders, and he saved his best for last. Darrow's three-day closing argument. You heard me right, three days, master class. He argued against capital punishment itself. He talked about youth and also the state of Illinois had never executed defendants so young, or at least not in a long time. And the country and the judge whose decision it was to ask to life or death, they hung on every word. The
3: uh, closing argument, is incredibly powerful indictment of capital punishment and a tremendously moving plea for mercy of Shakespearean quality. And it was, the trial was closely followed. The newspapers all over the country were following it. And it did have a lasting effect, not lasting effect in the technical legal sense, that um, it didn't overturn capital punishment, he but he moved right. the judge to show enough mercy to give these young men, they were basically 20, 21 by this time, but they had been teenagers when they committed the crime, not to sentence them to death. And indeed, one of them, one is killed in prison, the other one actually later gets out, you know, for a successful career after that, as a humanitarian in in Puerto Rico, just as you could say, the Scopes trial gave backbone to the anti-evolution movement in America. The the, uh, Leopold and Loeb really gives a backbone and a framework for the anti-capital punishment movement in America. Thereafter, even though capital punishment survives to this day, it's a little bit on its heels, in part because of the arguments that Darrow articulated. And even those people who didn't like Darrow, many Christians, especially in um, the more progressive churches or in the mainline churches, these arguments resonated with them, Peel for Mercy, and he plays on a plays on christian themes he plays on the ruby out of omar khayyam he plays on determinism the natural injustice of the uh, of the criminal uh, justice system and he plays on concerns about the about giving government too much power he plays on he plays every every string on that fiddle and he plays it beautifully um, i would say though your statement the one place i'd tick back is yes, it is one of his two greatest, most impactful statement. But the other would be a couple of years later at the Sweet trial in Detroit, where if you read that closing argument on racism and on uh, racial justice, you're literally in tears. Bailiffs and the judges would be crying during his statements. That's what they said. Um, there was not a dry eye in the house. And he knew how to as I said, he was a showman. He knew how to make his cases. And I do think that the closing argument in um, those two cases had made a lasting difference.
4: A news story gets shared by a friend on social media or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune into Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts, and remember, don't believe everything you read.
2: As we move forward to the second case that we'll dive in deep on, it's probably Daryl's most famous case. In March 1925, the Tennessee legislature passed the Butler Act. It prohibited the teaching of evolution in public schools. It's the culmination of lobbying efforts by fundamentalist Christians to reinstitute creationism in our country's classrooms. The Old Testament version of the origins of man. The ACLU seized on the Tennessee law and offered to represent anyone charged with violating the anti-evolution statute. Nadine Strassen, the former president of the ACLU, joins us and she explains how the ACLU set up the Scopes Monkey Trial. And Clarence Darrow, a founding member of the ACLU, would head the challenge of the Butler Act.
0: The Tennessee law that was challenged in the Scopes case was similar to a flurry of laws that were being passed across this country in a backlash against increasing support for evolution and a movement toward secularism and and, and a freeing up of society in general. So there was a reaction against that, and the law prohibited the teaching of evolution, not only in public schools, but even in public universities. Uh, The ACLU in the days before Google and the internet had Roger Baldwin was the founding executive director of the ACLU, a very charismatic, dynamic leader. His assistant would read and clip newspapers from around the country looking for civil liberties issues. And she found a news item, uh, probably in a, in, a, in a regional newspaper that mentioned this Tennessee law and brought it to Baldwin's attention. And Baldwin actually took out an ad seeking a school teacher who would be willing to defy the law and challenge it. And that's how John Scopes came to the ACLU's attention. Uh, The ACLU continued to be the primary supporter of the case. Uh, Clarence Darrow is justly famous for having been the lead lawyer in the case, but his his partner uh, who was also a lawyer in the case was one of the ACLU's general counsel, Arthur Garfield Hayes.
2: John Scopes was a football coach in the small town of Dayton, Tennessee. He occasionally subbed for some science classes, and he volunteered to be the teacher that challenged the law, working with city leaders in Dayton, Tennessee. They wanted this circus of a trial that would follow. I mean, being found guilty was only a maximum $100 fine for Scopes, but what made this trial so popular across the country was the media. Not just the newspapers, this was a news event that was experienced across the country in real time. This is something new, It's something we take for granted, but radio, moving pictures, traditional journalism all joined forces to bring America this epic battle between science and religion. But another thing we had in the 1920s was really the explosion of celebrities. The famous Claris Darrow was was going to be defending scope, and on the side of Tennessee, along with the state attorney general, would be the great commoner, William Jennings Bryan, three times the Democratic nominee for president beginning in 1896 when he lost to Ohio and William McKinley. You can go back last season, we did an entire season on Ohio's presidents and different Ohio presidential history, and you can listen to our episodes on McKinley, who he lost to twice, or William Howard Taft, who he lost to in 1908. You can hear a lot more about Brian, but he was a huge deal. This combination of modern media attention celebrity appeal made Scopes the story of the summer in 1925. Ed Larson, who won the Pulitzer Prize for his book on the on Daryl O'Brien and the Scopes Trial, joins us again to talk about the show trial and how it became a, such a flashpoint in American history.
3: It was the media that propelled the Scopes Trial because it wasn't a serious trial, as you say. And the, Brian, when he arrived, he said, you know, the only fine, the only possible penalty, Brian offered to pay it himself if he won the principle that, Uh, public school teachers in Tennessee should not teach that humans evolved from a lower form of animal. The law didn't even bar teaching evolution. It only barred teaching human evolution. Uh, And arguably, it's not quite clear. Arguably, you could only not teach it as true. You could still teach it as a theory. The 20s were a celebrity age. During the 20s, you had the emergence of radio, you had a proliferation of, uh, of newspapers that were widely read. And you had the rise of, of celebrity journalism. You had people like uh, Babe Ruth in baseball. You had people like uh, Mary Pickford. You had the rise of film, which of course you didn't really have local movie theaters before the 1920s. They were very small scale before that. So all of that, they grabbed on to the Scopes trial, which They build as, quite unlike what was really happening, they build as small town, rural South, fighting an accepted scientific theory. The reporters, the best reporters in America, descended on Dayton. They laid telegraph wires into town so they could actually telegraph out every word spoken. They had all these transcribers, They had a live radio broadcast, the first broadcast trial in American history, um, tied up when it was working, when the wires were working and they would come down in thunderstorms, they would actually be broadcast nationwide. It was filmed. You could see, when you see pictures of it, you see the cameras in the corners. They would film the trial and fly planes out they plowed down one of the local cornfields so airplanes could land for the first time in dayton and they'd fly off the film that night so the next day you could watch the trial in movie theaters in cleveland um, and some other towns cleveland was the only one in ohio you could go down and watch it of course they were silent so you'd have people reading the transcript and watch basically the entire trial with Daryl. You could see the speeches, you could see the activities, you could sit there right in Cleveland the next day and watch it with people reading the script alongside. Every major newspaper in America ran the word for word daily transcript.
2: Nadine Strassen joins us again to talk about Clarence Darrow and his relationship with the ACLU. which becomes a little strained in the buildup to this trial in 1925. She talks about how the American Civil Liberties Union leaders maybe even wanted him removed as the defense counsel.
0: Clarence Darrow was very involved with the ACLU from the beginning. He was even active in the uh, prior organization that gave rise to the ACLU. Uh, Nonetheless, he was a controversial figure because he was very flamboyant and he had uh, certain ideas about how the case should be tried, which didn't necessarily square with those of other ACLU leaders. The client is the one who gets to decide major matters, such as who is going to be my lawyer. And uh, some leaders in the ACLU were trying to pressure John Scopes to fire Clarence Darrow and to uh, use Arthur Garfield Hayes. Scopes decided to stay with the team of Darrow and Hayes.
2: As the trial gets underway in Dayton, Tennessee, there's immediately a big argument about the use of experts. Darrow, they were going to spend weeks laying the case for why evolution is not just a theory, but scientific fact. And to do that, Darrow and the ACLU brought in experts from all over the country. William Jennings Bryan, who had spent the last five years crisscrossing the country, trying to tear down evolution and promote creationism and his religious beliefs, he Changes tactics at the last minute. He sees this mountain of scientific evidence and experts that Darrow's planning to present at the trial. Ed Larson talks to us about how the trial proceeds and how Brian's challenge to expert testimony changed the trajectory of the Scopes Monkey trial.
3: The trial had been billed as the battle of the century, even before it began. And the original idea that had started with Brian, not Darrow, back then there was something called the Chautauqua. There were Chautauquas in Cleveland and outside Cleveland and outside Columbus and outside Cincinnati. Um, Of course, there's still one of the few existing Chautauquas left. One of the only four left is in Ohio, Lakeside, Ohio. Oh yeah, I've
2: been to Lakeside.
3: Yeah, and so you have one of the four left. Well, that's how they build it. They thought they could, this tiny town of Dayton, about 2,000, 2,500 people strong, could have a summer uh, event where they would bring in great speakers, to uh, debate the issue of evolution and its restriction. Darrow and the ACLU were able to find a lot of good expert witnesses, but Brian couldn't find any who would come to testify right. on his side except some really crackpot ministers who would not. He uh, Brian was a you know, national politician. He knew what would play on a national stage and not these speakers. He then reversed course and said that expert witness were inadmissible, expert testimony was inadmissible because the only question he now shifted, shift at the last minute, after after the defense had already brought in its stellar expert witnesses, you know, from Princeton and University of Chicago and Nashville, Tennessee and all over. Um, And it was quite a star-studded lineup. Brian realized he was gonna be clobbered in the media. And this was a media trial, they'd said from the beginning. It was a show trial that was going to be broadcast. He said, You can't litigate the justice of the, of the law, the constitutionality of the law. That can only be done under Tennessee law, and he was right, by the state Supreme Court. The, the local trial court simply had to enforce the law as written, and then the Supreme Court of Tennessee could gauge its constitutionality. So Brian took this position, which just, of course, frustrated Darrow. And, um, and the news media tremendously because they were, ex- and the townspeople who wanted to see this big show trial and uh, hear this testimony and attend this summer Chautauqua. Um, but of course he was gonna win because that's what the law said. And the only issue was whether scopes actually taught it the reason why that was odd is that scopes never taught evolution he wasn't he wasn't a biology teacher he was a um he was a football coach who, who had volunteered to stand as a witness so he had to um so he couldn't take the stand himself because when asked the question, do you ever teach evolution, you'd have to say no. (laughs) So um, so they didn't, but they didn't want that. They wanted there to be a trial. So at least it could be appealed to the Tennessee Supreme Court. The trial, instead of going on for weeks as planned, literally was thought it would go on for six, eight weeks. It only took a few days. Um, Most of it, not in the courtroom. Most of it, the judge deciding whether to admit expert witnesses or not. So there wasn't any time in the courtroom. All of these witnesses couldn't testify. And once Darrow realized that Brian would probably win on the argument, he came up with an alternative idea.
2: It was Darrow's quick thinking that made the Scopes trial memorable. The showdown between science and religion that would play out with Darrow and Brian on each respective side. Ed Larson talks to us about the trap that Darrow sets for William Jennings Bryan, the religious former leader of the Democratic Party. And he walks right into it.
3: Well, even Brian's fan thought Brian was came out worse in the deal. But as they would say, who wouldn't look like a fool if you were being cross-examined by Clarence Darrow? And that's what it was. You're right. Um, you're being a lawyer. You know the difference between it. Darrow called him, but the judge certified him as a hostile witness. And therefore, Darrow could actually cross-examine him. He didn't, even though he was his own witness, he he could use all the techniques of cross-examination, which, are, of course, are a lot more effective. And he said, what I'll do is I'll surprise him. On the, on the last day when we're going to go to closing arguments, I'll waive my closing argument, but instead call him to the stand. And meanwhile, during the entire week of the trial, he kept goading Brian. You can read it in the transcript. And then also his statements to the press that Brian is scared. Brian won't get up there. Brian won't hold the trial. Brian won't bring witnesses. Brian said this was going to be a battle royal with evolution. He said that what he was doing is he was setting them up. I mean, he admitted this afterwards, spent a week setting them up. And then on Monday, when they're only supposed to do closing arguments, he sprung on, let me call one expert witness. No, no, you can't hear expert witnesses. No, no, this one, what if this one agrees to come? And what if the prosecution agrees? And the judge sort of tilts his head and said, well, I guess if the prosecution agrees, who do you have in mind? I want to call a person who claims he's an expert on the Bible, one that even they can't object to, and that is Brian. Now, that just, I mean, the judge just didn't know what to say. But Brian insisted on going up there.
2: Darrell calls William Jennings Brian to the stand, and the battle is played out on the radio for the whole country to hear. doesn't go well for the great as he was known. I encourage you to read the transcript of this battle Darrow had been preparing for this unknowingly his whole life. His father, Amoris, had asked these questions about a literal interpretation of the Bible for Clarence's entire childhood. Ed Larson talks through one of the most famous court testimonies in American legal history, the day in the summer of 1925 when Clarence Darrow and William Jennings Bryan duked it out over the Bible, evolution, and the role of science.
3: He said, I'll go up and testify. He thought he'd be asked questions about evolution, and he had been speaking against evolution for five years um, in many different speeches and books. And so he had good answers ready about evolution. That's what he thought he'd be asked about. Clarence Darrow is too smart for that. As every lawyer learns in law school, you never ask a question to a witness where the answer could hurt you. You only ask questions that you already know the answer to, or ones no matter what they say, it's going to help you. And nobody knew this better than Clarence Darrow. So Darrow never asked a single question about evolution. What he does is he peppers him on things like, is the Bible literally true? Do you believe in Adam and Eve? Do you believe in Noah's Ark? Where did Cain get his wife?
2: That's a good one. Um, All that
3: sort of thing. The classic village atheist questions that his dad had asked and that he had asked for years and which they knew there is no possible good answer to them. The educated audience, you just sound like you just sound foolish. And so that's what he did. And it goes on and on and on. He asked about ancient civilizations. Yeah. Brian, who is quite sophisticated, like many evangelicals of that day, fully accepted the scientific ev- evidence of an old earth, that there were dinosaurs and there were vast periods and there was you know, the world was, in fact, on the stand, when he asked how old the earth is, he, he all he could say was, I don't care whether it's 6,000 years old, or 600,000 years old, or 600 million years old. I say that the days of creation are ages of time, ages of geological time. Well, that's a funny answer, because you lose your own fundamentalist following with that answer. But you also admit As Darrow pointed out, as the the defense pointed out, you admit that the Bible has to be interpreted. So why can't we interpret it, the Bible as well? So Brian just kept sinking deeper and deeper and deeper in the hole and getting more and more frustrated and insisted on battling on until finally, after two and a half hours, the judge stopped it and said, you just wouldn't let this humiliation go on any
2: Brian never gets the chance to take his case to the country for this anti-evolution bill. He would die five days after the trial ends. He's still in Dayton, Tennessee. And Darrow outmaneuvers him in another important way at the end of the trial. Brian agreed to testify against Darrow in part because he didn't want to look like he was afraid to engage, you know, the village atheist. But also he had a planned out closing argument. The testimony stunt would bring more attention to the trial's finale. But Darrow informs the court that he will forego his closing statement after he rips Brian to shreds. and Under Tennessee law, that meant that the prosecution couldn't give a close either. Brian's just thoroughly outlawed by Darrow. We ask Ed Larson about the legacy that this trial left and how really it's the first major battle in these culture wars that we're living through today. in this epic struggle between science and religion.
3: It is interesting that before Scopes, um, there was quite a bit of harmony among, uh, which were then called evangelical Christians. Evangelical Christians tended to be quite reconciled to scientific ideas. Indeed, many of the leading scientists of the 1800s, all of these people were evangelical Christians. And they had done all the initial work um, showing the fossil record and that the world was very old. And what happened though was that the anti-evolution crusade that started around 1920 and culminated in the Scopes Trial, which is perceived and presented as science versus religion, you see a growing split. Then the Scopes Trial, if it did anything, you see a retreat of the now-called fundamentalists and some evangelicals, seeing the the way Brian was ridiculed, away from direct engagement, away from trying to battle within established institutions, and forming their own separate institutions. Bryan College, now called college, then called William Jennings Bryan University in Dayton, Tennessee, is an example of that. But you also see it in the rise of places like Wheaton College in Illinois, separate institutions. You end up with a a Christian subculture that keeps growing and growing and growing depends on what poll you look, but it's a, maybe a third of the American people directly or indirectly live in this subculture, and at least a third, probably half of the people in Ohio fitting into it. And that sort of division—it's no longer a united America. It's um, it's uh, America with these separate entities. And in this in this subculture, it's not that it rejects science, but it is skeptical of secular science.
2: This wasn't the last battle over evolution in our public schools. The ACLU would fight into the 1960s, and even during our guest Nadine Strasser's 17 years as the head of the ACLU. That didn't end in her term ends in 2008. They were still fighting and beating back challenges by state school boards on creationism versus evolution. Nadine tells us the history of the anti-evolution laws in the ACLU after Scopes. You got to remember that Scopes is found guilty. It's a victory for the ACLU, but not in court. The Butler Act, the anti-evolution law, it's still upheld in scopes.
0: These issues continue to be, or perhaps I should say, recycled uh, into the forefront of public controversy. I think because of similar social situations that and cultural situations that we saw in the 1920s, that as society was becoming more secular, uh, more open to gender and to sexual orientation minorities and reproductive freedom. Um, there was a backlash as there was a backlash in the 1920s. Well, remember seeing Inherit the Wind and, and interpreting that as a victory for Darrow and for the ACLU. Well, it was, certainly was a victory in the court of public opinion, but not in the court of law. Uh, Scopes was convicted. Ultimately his sentence or his fine was was overturned because of a technicality. It was imposed by uh, the judge, not by the jury, but on the major constitutional issues that the ACLU and Darrow and Scopes were arguing, uh, we, we lost, the court rejected our arguments for intellectual freedom, academic freedom and against uh, establishment of religion. It was not until many decades later, almost half a century later, that the US Supreme Court for the very first time invalidated a law such as the Tennessee law, which prohibited the teaching of evolution. That was in another ACLU case in 1968 called Epperson versus Arkansas.
2: The Scopes trial started us down a path where science and religion diverged. Ed Larson claims it wasn't always this way. For example, you know, forty-five percent of white evangelicals today say they would not get the COVID vaccine. It's the second lowest acceptance of any religious affiliation. The challenges to global warming have an even more stark difference between evangelicals and the general public as to its truth and veracity. Ed Larson talks to us about how he finds Vaccine hesitancy among evangelicals puzzling, considering the history of science and evangelical Christianity. He says this is something that we can overcome this divide. You can have both.
3: And that's interesting because the whole idea of vaccinations started with people like Pasteur and Jenner, who were devout Christians. And then, of course, you go back to the earliest in American history, Cotton Mather, a Puritan leader. He brought the, the, the early smallpox vaccinations to America and championed them. So again, it's, a, it's an interesting history. You see that in Francis Collins, the, the head of the Human Genome Project and now head of National Institutes of Health, a devout evangelical Christian who writes books like *The Language of God*, explaining um, ev- a theistic evolution in religious in religious terms that that even the leading the leading evangelical Christians all have enormous respect for him. Now, it's not a secular science; God is infuses this science, but you can do first-rate science and believe in an active Christian God and um, and Christ.
2: final case today is the case of Ocean Sweet, the black doctor charged with first-degree murder of a white man in Detroit. Truly remarkable case, and we'll get into the particulars, but first let me introduce our fourth and final guest, Kevin Boyle. Kevin's a professor of history at Northwestern University and the author of the compelling page-turner of a book, Arc of Justice. It's about the sweet case, and Arc of Justice won the National Book Award for Nonfiction in 2004. It's a pretty huge award in the literary community. And it's that good of a book. In the 1920s, as a result of the Great Migration, what we now call Northern segregation took hold. We see a rise of the KKK in the North in the 1920s, but Northern segregation is quite different from Southern Jim Crow segregation we all know from our history books. Kevin Boyle explains how Northern segregation in a city like Cleveland or Detroit, how it worked, and how this system of segregation helped to segregate entire major Northern cities.
1: You're absolutely right that when people, most Americans, most white Americans, think about segregation, what they think of is the Jim Crow South. What they think of is a system of legal segregation. Jim Crow, had all, the South had all sorts of forms of segregation at the turn of the century, late 19th, and then well into the 20th century. But the ones that were most powerful were legal segregation. So it was law that said that African American kids couldn't go to the same school with white kids. But as African-Americans started to move north in the first 20, 30 years of the 20th century, segregation kind of followed along behind them. And as it moved, as segregation moved up to the north, then what happened is the legal segregation started to fall away. So by the time you got to a city like Cleveland, there weren't any laws anymore saying that white kids and black kids had to be in separate schools. In fact, in Ohio, The law explicitly said exactly the opposite, that segregated schools were illegal. And so what happened instead was, the North embraced forms of segregation that weren't legally required. The two key ones, there's a lot of them. So you go out on a Saturday night as an African-American in a city like Cleveland or Detroit, and you might walk into a bar that is perfectly happy to have you, or you might walk into one where the owner is gonna pull a gun on you and tell you you're not allowed there which, of course, in some ways makes it more terrifying, right? Because at least in the South, you knew what was going to happen. You never quite knew in the North where segregation was going to come and not. But the key pieces of segregation in the North were two. One was the segregation of work. And the higher you got in the status structure of employment, the more severe segregation got. So if you were down at the bottom of the economic order working as An unskilled worker, say, on a loading dock, that is probably integrated work. African Americans could get that work. You're a doctor or a lawyer, you're not going to be able to work in white spaces. That's one form of segregation. Not by law, no one's required it, just the way it happened. The other key form of segregation, and it's the heart of the story I told, is the segregation in neighborhoods. If you went into an African-American neighborhood in Detroit or Cleveland in 1900, about half the people there would be black, half would be white, living side by side. Then what happened is the African-American population increased, all of a sudden, more and more people, white people started to say, nope, don't want African-Americans living in my neighborhood. They can have their own neighborhood, they can live there, but they can't live anywhere else. That's really easy to explain. That's driven by a rising tide of racism. As long as there are very few African-American people living in your city, it's easy to be open-minded. As the African-American population increased, more and more whites said, nope, we want our neighborhoods segregated. So what happened instead is that the forces of the real estate marketplace, all the things that define how a real estate market works, they embraced segregation of neighborhoods. The beautiful thing about this story for me as a historian is I can tell you exactly when it happened. (laughs) 1923, the Detroit Realtors Association wrote in their rule book that if an African American wanted to see a house in a white neighborhood, the realtors couldn't show it to him. That wasn't there in 1922, wasn't there in 21. 23, it was there. Same time, the bank started to say if an African American wants to buy a house in a white neighborhood, we won't give them a mortgage. The white insurance company said if they do buy it, we won't insure it. And so what happened in the 1920s is that the forces of the real estate marketplace took that rising tide to racism, and they organized it, and they institutionalized it. And when they did that, that's how you segregate a city.
2: I got to say, my interview with Kevin Boyle, it's one of the most you know, fascinating interviews we've done in six seasons on this show. We thought about just doing an episode later on The Sweet Case alone. He's represented by Darrow, an Ohioan. And although Ocean suite, yes, it's Ocean, O-S-S-I-A-N, although he's raised in rural Florida, his family sends him north at 13 to be educated at the All Black Wilberforce School in western Ohio. He goes to school there all the way through college, and at that fine institution we've discussed many times on this show, whether it was our episode on Colonel Charles Young... Uh, W.E.B. Du Bois. It even came up last episode when we mentioned the famous poet, Paul Lawrence Dunbar. There's so much we had to leave on the cutting room floor in this episode from all of our guests to try and tell the story in one package. Anyways, he leaves Wilberforce and goes to med school, eventually moves to Detroit, which was a booming city in the 20s, to start his medical practice. Kevin takes us through the journey of how a young black doctor's first home purchase turns him into an indicted murderer. So
1: what happened was that, Ocean Suite moved to Detroit. He finishes his his medical degree at Howard University of Washington, D.C., 1921. and He moved to Detroit. Right after that, he had been in Detroit a few summers. He had spent working there um, when he was down at Wilberforce. So he knew the city, and he knew it was a vibrant place, and he knew he could make a life for himself there. So he moved there in 1921. He understood, because he was a doctor, that all of his patients were going to be Black. So what he did is he moved down to the Black neighborhood in Detroit, which is a neighborhood then called Black Bottom, um, which to this day, Detroiters will insist, had no racial connotation, but it was the Black neighborhood. And so in 1925, in the spring of 25, they went house hunting, and they found this very nice house on a very ordinary side street on the east side of Detroit on Garland Avenue. The rumor got out in the neighborhood, which is a completely white neighborhood, that blacks were moving in and the panic started to spread. And the sweets of course, picked up on this. They heard this. It's going to be trouble. And so what they decided to do was to prepare for the chance that something goes hor- was going to go horribly wrong. Those neighborhoods are going to try to drive them out. And they did a whole bunch of things in the summer of 25, after they had bought the house, but before they had moved in. They gathered together a bunch of friends, two of Ocean's brothers, a couple of his cousins, a bunch of friends who all agreed they'd come in that night, to, first couple of nights they're in the house to watch over the house and make sure it's safe. They arranged that on the first couple of nights their baby would stay with Mrs. Sweet's parents because you don't take a chance with your baby. They arranged for the police to come and protect the house but they didn't trust the police. Police force was completely white police force was a major center of Ku Klux Klan activity in Detroit, which was very big in Detroit, 1925. And so they also arranged their own defense. They gathered together huge cache of weapons, 10 pistols, rifles, shotguns, hundreds of rounds of ammunition. And on September 8th, their move-in day, they moved, they took all that stuff, all those weapons, they put them in some big bags, they carried them into the house, they went upstairs to the second floor where there was a built-in linen closet in the hallway. And they put all the guns in there and they waited for nightfall. And they waited for that mob to come. And it did. First night, the house on Garland Avenue is on a corner corner lot. Police came, there were about a dozen policemen out on the sidewalk. Beyond them, there were hundreds of people out on the street, hundreds and hundreds of white people out on the streets. And the suites and their friends, the all 11, well, 10 men, anyways, they raced upstairs, they grabbed the guns, they went to the upstairs windows, they sat in those upstairs windows waiting for that mob attack to come, and nothing happened. Mobs stood out there till 11, 12 o'clock at night, and then it slowly dissipated, people went home. But just for a second, what you got to think about is what it means to have spent three or four hours sitting at a window waiting for a giant mob to attack you. And this is not some sort of big elaborate front yard they got. It's one of those tiny little postage stamp front yards. I've I've been in this house. If someone from that street tried to charge up to the front porch, they'd be on that front porch in about 10 seconds. So when that mob finally dissipated, Sweets and their friends, they were just so terrified and they were just so pumped up. Mrs. Sweet talked about spending the night walking through the house because she couldn't sleep. Then the next Morning, everybody went off to work. Everyone went off like it was completely normal day. Dr. Sweet went down to his practice. Mrs. Sweet went out to buy furniture because it was her first house. (laughs) So she had nothing to put in it. And then around five o'clock that night, the second night, September 9th, 1925, they all came back. And then right around 7.38 o'clock, Dr. Sweet's little brother, Henry, got up from the card table and he went to the front window to look out and the mob was back. And so the men raced up the stairs again, and they opened up the linen closet again. Dr. Sweet took out a handgun, and he realized he ought to make sure that it was loaded. And so he tried to check to see whether there were any bullets in the barrel. And as he was doing that, he realized that his hand was shaking so violently because he was so tired and he was so scared that he needed to calm himself down. And so he went into the front bedroom, and it's a house with dormers, so the front bedroom has a sloping ceiling. And he lay down in this little tight little bedroom, lay down on the bed, took off his shoes, so he wouldn't mess up the comforter. And he lay there for about 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Then something happened out on the street and the crowd started throwing stones at the house. And they hid on the porch and they hid on this sloping roof down over the porch. And one of them went through the window in the front bedroom. And when that happened, when the sound of shattering glass went through the house, the other men in the house opened fire probably somewhere around 30 times. Most of them fired up into the air, but at least one of them fired into the crowd and they hit two people in the crowd. And he got out onto the front porch and he took a bullet right below his knee. The other person they hit was a man named Leon Breiner and he lived about halfway down the block, but it's a really long block. And so he was sitting out on his porch and all the excitement was down at the far end of the block and he couldn't t- see anything. So he wandered down to see what was going on before the shooting. He was standing on the lawn directly across from the suite, same lawn where the man, the other guy was shot, talking with people on the porch. He had his back turned to the suite's house and he got one bullet in the back and it went right through him and it killed him. And at that moment, when that happened, then the police all raced inside the suite house and they arrested all 11 people. Dr. Sweet, Mrs. Sweet. Dr. Sweet's two brothers, all of their friends, and within two days, they were all charged with first-degree murder. That's the story that Clarence Darrow then steps into.
2: The Sweet case ends up becoming a cause for a young organization known as the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. It's only like 10 or 15 years old at the time. It's not the national powerhouse advocacy organization we know it as today. Much like the ACLU from our last case, They also look to make some headlines for their young organization by hiring the most famous lawyer in America, Clarence Darrow. Kevin tells us how Darrow gets hired to represent Ocean Sweet and his 10 fellow co-defendants. It's actually a pretty funny story.
1: And by kind of sheer luck, really, this one paragraph, this tiny little story, one paragraph story appears a couple days later in one of the New York City newspapers. And it says, 11 Negroes arrested in Detroit. My guess is nobody noticed this in all of New York except for one person, who's James Walden Johnson, who was then the head of the NAACP. And he says, look, when they come up, when the suites and their friends come up for a trial in Detroit, the NAACP will represent them. Problem is, they couldn't get them a lawyer. For about a month before, after the NAACP agreed to take up the trial, and in those days, the NAACP didn't have its own legal team. It hadn't been created yet. They just had to hire lawyers, or better yet, find one for free. So they went in search of a lawyer and there wasn't a defense lawyer in Detroit who wanted this case. I mean this is an African-American man killed a white guy in the streets of Detroit in 1925. This is not a case that builds a career. (laughs) And so they're like a month from trial and they don't have a lawyer. And then somebody suggests to them, you know, maybe Clarence Darrow would do it. And the NAACP leapt all over that. Not because Clarence Darrow was a great lawyer in a technical sense, but because he was the most famous defense lawyer in America. This was just a couple of months after the Scopes Monkey trial, which had been a media circus. He, nobody is more famous in the law than Clarence Darrow in 1925. And so they contacted Darrow and said, Mr. Darrow, who is based in Chicago, can we come see you? It turns out that Darrow was visiting a friend of his, his co-counsel from the Scopes Trial, actually, Arthur Garfield Hayes, who, was, who lived in New York, and that's where the NAACP was based too, so they arranged that day to go meet Clarence Darrow. So off they go, three representatives from the NAACP, Walter White, who was kind of the associate director of the NAACP. Walter White was a very interesting figure, was an African-American man born and raised in Atlanta had white skin and blonde hair. Going with him was Arthur Spingarn, who was the head of the NAACP's board, who was a white man with swarthy skin, and then his associate, who was also a white man with swarthy skin. So they go to meet Clarence Darrow, and the way they tell the story is they walk in to meet Darrow, who's sitting up in bed, he's resting in bed, big bear of a man, they tell him about the case and Darrow he, in his memoir, which you can't trust a word of, he describes how he was filled with sympathy for them and wanted to take up this case in the great abolitionist tradition. Their version of events is they tell him the story and he looks at Spingarn, the white man, and he says to him, well, I have always had great sympathy for your people. And Spingarn's embarrassed and he said, well, I'm sorry, Mr. Darrow, but I'm a white man. And then he looks at his, uh, that Spingard's associate, and he said, well, I wouldn't make that mistake with you. Now I sympathize with your people. And he says, I'm a white man too. And he finally turns to Walter White and he says, well, you are not worried about, you're clearly a white guy. And White says, I'm a Negro. <laughs> and Darrow says, I'll take the case.
2: October 30th, 1925, an all-white jury is seated to hear the sweet case. Judge Frank Murphy, a young Detroit judge who'd go on to become appointed to the Supreme Court by FDR, is presiding. Kevin takes us through Clarence Darrow's defense, and it was unorthodox, to say the least. Instead of the self-defense against a mob argument, he takes on the idea of white supremacy itself. With an all-white jury, where a group of African Americans are accused of killing a white man in the street, shooting another one, it's a bold strategy. The question is, would it work?
1: Because there's an easy way to argue this case as a defense attorney. In the state of Michigan in 1925, there was a really strict rule laws about mob action. I think this is right. Is 15 armed people made a mob? 30 mob, 30 unarmed people made a mob if they were taking threatening action. And a man had, or a woman, a person, had an absolute right to defend his home from a mob. He didn't have to be even right that they were threatening him. He had to feel threatened. So the legal issue here was really simple. And the prosecution basically staged the most ludicrous prosecution you could possibly case because they brought about 80 witnesses on the stand to say there was no mob. Well, by definition, there was a mob. if you got 80 people who were standing there. (laughs) Legally, this was an easy case to argue, but he didn't argue it that way. Instead, what he did is he built the case around this inversion. What he did is he brought these people from Garland Avenue, the white people from Garland Avenue, one by one up onto the stand and he humiliated them. He made them look like fools, made fun of them, the way they misspoke words, the way they couldn't articulate their points very clearly, because they were just ordinary working people. It was vicious. And then he put Dr. Sweet on the stand, and here is this medical doctor, highest professional standards, man with his college degree, a man with advanced training, who spoke eloquently and powerfully about the burdens of his race. And by that inversion, he said to those 12 white people, that's the insane thing about American racial thinking. How in the world do you look at those people from Garland Avenue and this man, Dr. Sweet, and somehow say that there's white superiority in this
2: nation? As our guest Ed Larson told us earlier, he believes the closing argument in this case was Darrow's greatest moment of lawyering. His seven-hour closing argument called for unity between the races brought people in the gallery to tears. Kevin Boyle tells us about Darrow's closing argument, which would lead to a hung jury and the eventual exoneration of all 11 defendants.
1: One of the things that... Darrow was best at, really it was his great skill as lawyer, was his closing statement, because then he got the platform to himself. And in that memoir I mentioned a little while ago, he says this is the best closing statement he ever gave. It was seven hours long. Um, This part is the closing of the closing. This is what he said. I don't believe in the law of hate. I may not be true to my ideals always, but I believe in the law of love. And I believe you can do nothing with hatred. I would like to see a time when man loves his fellow man and forgets his color or his creed. We will never be civilized until that time comes. I know that the Negro race has a long road to go. I believe the life of the Negro has been a life full of tragedy, of injustice, of oppression. The law has made him equal, but man has not. I'm sorry. I would advise patience. I would advise toleration. I would advise understanding. I would advise all those things which are necessary for men to live together. And that is all.
2: Clarence Darrow would remain relevant in his latter years. Cases like the Massey trial in Hawaii in 1932. There's a great PBS American experience on that case. You should go watch it. But he'd die in 1938 in his home in Chicago at age 80. But what didn't die with Darrow was the system of northern segregation that would permeate nearly every major city in the United States to this day. Kevin grew up in Detroit. It's one of the country's most segregated big cities. He's a professor at Ohio State when he wrote the award-winning book, Arc of Justice. He lived in Bexley on the east side at the time. And you talk about how, you know, literally divided by train tracks would be the African-American community and the white community. Columbus is a pretty segregated city itself, has been for nearly two centuries. Kevin's now at Northwestern in the highly segregated city of Chicago. As we close, we ask Kevin about these towns he's lived in, their enduring legacy, of Northern segregation here in America.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate you asking that because it's one of the things that's really so, to me, is so fundamentally important for white Americans, and I'm a white American, to realize, until, well, even today, there's all these enormous fights about the institutionalization of racism and the question of the enduring power of segregation and a lot of people a lot of white people take real comfort in realizing that the jim crow system of the american south is gone you know no one's riding in the back of the bus in atlanta unless they want to sit in the back of a bus but the system of segregation in the north that system that segregated neighborhoods it's completely enduring and it's easy to say that, I realize that that sounds kind of gross generalization, so let me make it more specific. There's an official measurement of segregation that sociologists do. It's called the Index of Dissimilarity. And what they do, the U.S. Census Bureau does it. Every, year, every 10 years when they do the census, they measure how many African Americans would have to move in each metropolitan area in the country in order for that metropolitan area to be completely integrated. So it's a scale. If a metropolitan area, not just the city, but the entire metropolitan area, gets a score of zero, it is completely integrated. If it gets a score of 100, it's completely segregated. Last time, now we'll get these numbers pretty soon, I assume, for 2020. But right now all we've got is 2010. And according to those numbers, Chicago is the third most segregated city in America. Detroit, in 2010, was the fourth most segregated city in America. And that scale, that number on that zero to 100 scale for those two cities was about 75. Three quarters of African-Americans living in the city of Chicago or living in the metropolitan area of Detroit would have to move to make those places integrated. That's enduring segregation. Now, Columbus is better. Columbus is, I don't know the exact number. I want to say it's somewhere around the 30th most segregated city in America. And that number for Chicago, for Columbus back in 2010, at least, was about 63. We are still a hyper-segregated America. And that's not a legacy of the past, though it was created in the past. That's not some vestige of a past system gone. That's an enduring system of segregation that stares us in the face.
2: Our book recommendation this episode is Summer for the Gods by Ed Larson. The book won the Pulitzer Prize for History in 1998. Winning that award, it changed Ed's life as a scholar, as a writer. He had no intention that he was going to win. You know how I you know that? Back in the day, before email and texting and Zoom, you're supposed to sit by the phone the day the Pulitzer Prize is announced. He's nominated, but he's not by the phone. He finds out from hotel staff when he arrives at his destination. We asked Ed Larson about winning the Pulitzer and how he's not the only Mansfield, Ohio native to win this prestigious award in literature.
3: Actually, I was um, flying up to get when it when it was announced. I thought you know it never crossed my mind, literally, it never crossed my mind that I would win the Pulitzer Prize. I was totally floored. And I and when the announcement goes out, I happen to be flying up to speak at my mother's uh alma mater which was she went for the first two years of her college at she was from Marion Ohio but she went the um first two years at Hillsdale College where her parents had gone and met and I was going up there to speak um and it was only after I landed uh, up there in Detroit that I had heard that um I much to my surprise I had won the Pulitzer Prize and so there you go which was which apparently I was the second person connected with mansfield louis bromfield of malabar also had won the Pulitzer Prize, and so i uh had the good fortune to uh
2: join him and thanks again to ed for sitting down with us we talked for over an hour he's an awesome guy to be willing to chat that long and we talked about a lot of stuff that not just darrow and scopes and leopold and Loeb. just a, a great interview a special thank you to Nadine Strassen, author, lawyer, former president of the ACLU, for coming on to talk about her important organization that represents the constitutional rights of all Americans. If you think the ACLU is some liberal organization, you're not paying attention. They've defended and will continue to defend everyone's rights, including conservatives. You know, check the receipts. And also check out Nadine's recent book, Hate, Why Should We Should Resist It with Free Speech and Not Censorship. That's from 2018. There's a link in the show notes for that one. A refreshing, accurate look at the censorship in, in modern American culture. A lot of stuff in that book that I agree with. Also, special thanks to John Saya, His firm Sayah and Pyatt can handle all your legal needs. Free commercial here for John. Criminal, domestic, family law, all of it. Uh, go to SPLaws.com. Great guy, great friend, and thank you so much for coming on. For we're allowed to have two book recommendations, we'd have to also add of Justice by Kevin Boyle. There's also a link in the show notes to that book as well. 2004 winner of the National Book Award for Nonfiction, we asked Kevin about the title of his book and just about this story, this important little-known civil rights story. Arc of Justice, unfortunately, doesn't follow that comfortable narrative of civil rights history we're taught in school. And not everything, you know, has a happy ending.
1: I love this title, and it does. I take it from that famous quote that the moral, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. <sighs> It's just the wrong title, um, because it doesn't. It's exactly, Alex, what you were just saying, that what Dr. Sweet does, Mrs. Sweet does, their friends do, is they risk everything to confront this growing system of neighborhood segregation just at the time it's consolidating, just as it's coming together. They move into that house two years after the Realty Board put in those rules about showing a house to African-Americans. So they risk everything to challenge this system of segregation. And though he is not convicted, it's one of Darrow's great victories, they don't stop that system of segregation from consolidating, they'll come close to stopping that system. And it took me a long, long time to realize as I was working on the book that I was writing tragedy. That this, we think of civil rights stories and it's a great thing to think of civil rights stories this way. People do brave things, they do dangerous things, they take enormous risks. And by doing that, what they do is they improve race relations. We see a victory at the end. This isn't that. This is a story about a civil rights struggle that doesn't produce a victory at the end.
2: That's going to do it, guys. One of our favorite episodes ever. One of our longer episodes ever. I hope my fellow lawyer friends enjoyed it as well. We've reached the midpoint of season six. And thanks to so many people, we've reached out to say that this is our best season ever. We feel the same way. We're only halfway home. So uh, I guess we have the right to, to pull that back at some point. But speaking of the midpoint of the season, we'll be taking an extra week off before the start of the second half. So instead of two Tuesdays, this next episode will be out in three weeks. We're gone for a little while. We, we hope you don't mind. But uh, we gave you a 90-minute episode here to last to the extra week. So thanks again to our friends at Evergreen Podcast Network for their help this season. Go to evergreenpodcast.com. Check out all the shows they have to offer. Uh, and a bunch of new shows that are onboarding now we're really excited about. Uh, Episode 7 will be coming up. It's a World War II story, one of the most shameful events in American history, but a very important event to remember here in 2021 for multiple reasons. That'll be out on July 20th. So enjoy your July 4th holiday, everybody. Happy 245th birthday to America, and we'll see you next time.